Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have a lecture from Rich Bledsoe given at a past Biblical Horizons conference, and this lecture is on the unity of the church. This lecture is taken from the 1998 Biblical Horizons conference, and you can find that entire conference on the Theopolis app. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is Rich Bledsoe discussing the unity of the church. Turn to John chapter 17. And this is Jesus' prayer for the church. And for his disciples, this is sometimes called his high priestly prayer. And this he prays just before, really the night before his arrest and betrayal. So let me read a couple of verses here. The 20th verse, in the section prior to this, he's praying for the apostles. And now, in this section, he's going to pray for the whole of the church through all of the successive ages. All of those who will come to believe in him through the word of the apostles. So starting with the 20th verse, I do not pray for these alone, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. And the glory which you gave to me I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you love me from before the foundation of the world. Why don't we stop with that? Now, there are a couple of astonishing things that John says in this particular few couple of verses. And I think when we look at this passage, the Gospel of John, I suppose, is the most obviously Trinitarian of all places in the Bible. Now, Paul tells us all kinds of things that we can build our doctrine of the Trinity out of two, but through the Gospel of John, you seem to have this whole kind of enormous background of the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are just so obviously on the surface of so many passages. And in this particular passage, there's all this Trinitarian language as well, the Father and the Son. And he says something in this passage that ought to do an enormous amount to encourage us all and something that is so amazing that if we can get our minds and hearts around this, it ought to do something to us. He tells us that the Father loves us with exactly the same love that he loves Jesus with. Love them with the same love that you love me with. Now that's absolutely astonishing because here we are, little pipsqueaks, little specks of dust floating around out in space and we are nothing. And here he is, the only begotten Son of God, who has existed from eternity to eternity, of the same substance as the Father, and he is in a perfect love relationship by means of the Holy Spirit with the Father, and has been from all eternity and will be to all eternity. 
And we know that the Father loves the Son with an infinite and perfect and vast immeasurable love. And what this passage tells us is that the Father loves his church as a totality, as the bride of Christ, and everyone in the church as an individual with exactly the same love or with the same kind of love, the same quantity of love, the same quality of love that he loves his only begotten son with. Now that is something that ought to sweep us away, and it tells us something about the vast, unmeasurable care of God for all of us. Now, none of us know what to do with infinite love. Have all of you here read C.S. Lewis's Grief Observed, the little book he wrote after his wife's death? It's an astonishing... I mean, Lewis was, of course, so eloquent. He was able to verbalize so many things that so many of us can't. And after his wife's death, married late in life, was was a bachelor professor all of his life, married very late in life, was deeply in love, was profoundly changed by his marriage. And after a marriage of only a few years, his wife was taken from him by cancer. And he really had no desire left to live after his wife's death. And in fact, did die only a few years after that. I don't think he ever recovered his prior happiness. I mean, the happiness he had as a bachelor before he was married. He says in this book, I was happy before and I think I can be happy again. But I don't think he ever recovered that. But he describes, now why do they bring that up? I had some particular reason for bringing up this extraordinary love, you see, that Lewis had for his wife. It's in that book. He says, this is what the love of God is like. You see, he's trying to come to grips with the infinite love of God that God has for him. And he says, God seems to be like a dentist. It's going to the dentist, and there's this horrible pain he takes you through. And you know intellectually it's for your good, but you can't grasp that. And this is what infinite love is like. You see, we really cannot grasp why God permits the extraordinary pain he allows in the world and extraordinary pain he allows in our lives and the terrible trials and struggles and so on because we don't know what infinite love is. All we know is that we follow in the footsteps of Jesus and we have a big picture because we have the Bible. But you see, we know that God loves us with the same love that he loves Jesus Christ with. Here we are, we're the daughter-in-law, so to speak. We are the bride of the Son, and he takes us into the household, and he loves us with exactly the same love that he loves his Son with. So we are part of this family. So let's just take that as this extraordinary background, this extraordinary revelation that God loves us with exactly the same love that he loves the Son with. And we go on in this passage, and in unfolding this passage, there's a whole lot in this part of John about glory. And I'm sure Jim has done a good deal of teaching with all of you, especially since he's teaching on Revelation, which is a lot about glory. Glory seems to be everywhere in the Bible, and glory is one of those things that you can't quite propositionally get a hold of. It's something that you have more of an intuition about. You listen to Beethoven, and you have some sense of glory, or... In our instance, when we visit the Grand Canyon, if you've ever seen the Grand Canyon, you see this magnificent thing, and there's so much space in the thing, you can't grasp it. And you have some sense of glory when you see this. Or in my home state, when I climb Long's Peak, and you come up to the famous or the infamous east face of that thing, which is about 1,500 feet sheer rock. It's one of the most famous rock climbs in the world. It's a 1% overhang. And you see these rock climbers. I don't know how they do it, how they dare do it, but... They look like little ants on this thing, and you have to sleep out overnight in a hammock on this sheer cliff and so on. And every time I get up on Long's Peak and climb Long's Peak, and I don't climb the east face, I take the easy way up and easy way down. 
But I look out at that thing, and it just causes me to tremble because it's so magnificent and enormous. Well, you see, we have some sense of glory when we see these things. And the arts, of course, especially help us to get some sense of glory. It's the sort of thing that causes you to tremble with a sense of majesty and so on. There's a whole lot in here about glory. Now, if I were to ask any of you, because in our theological and biblical training, you say, well, what's the course of the church and what's the course of a believer? And we have what sometimes is called an ordo salutis or an order of salvation. You're predestined from before the foundation of the world, and then you're called, and then you're justified, and then you're sanctified, and then you're glorified. And we would tend to say that glory is the final outworking of our life as Christians, that the end working of everything as Christians is to be glorified. But actually, this passage contradicts that. It tells us, if we look at this passage carefully, that glory is not the end Result, if you will, or the final result or the highest end of what a Christian is called to. In fact, what Jesus tells us here, he prays that the church would be glorified in order that the highest end of the church might be fulfilled. And the highest end of the church is to be unified or to be one as the Father and the Son are one. So glory becomes, if you will, a means to an end. And the end is that we will be one, and you see a whole lot in the Gospel of John about what it is that makes us one. What is it that makes us one? Well, perfect love is a perfect unity, a perfect harmony, a perfect harmony of life together. And there's oneness in truth. We are, the truth is the only thing that can make you one. You are one in truth, but eventually the church as an analogy, a created analogy, begins to resemble or does resemble the perfect love relationship that the Father and the Son have with one another. So eventually, in glory, the church herself will reflect this perfect, absolute unity that we have with one another that will exactly reflect the glory of the Father and the Son. And the Spirit is the one who brings this entire unity about. Now, that is a wonderful thing. And something that we need to have some sense of is that if we're going to experience unity in the church and therefore have some kind of resemblance in ourselves, we look like the Trinity himself, look like the relationship of the Father and the Son himself, then what we have to have are increasing drops of glory that are poured on us. Now, we all know that glorification is the final consequent outworking. It's what God will do to us when we're taken to heaven. We will be perfectly glorified. And we can only speak about that in metaphorical language. We'll shine like the sun. We'll have this splendor about us. We don't quite know what it means. But glory is not something that only happens to us at the very end, even in this world, even in this state of humiliation, where in some fundamental sense, everything that's glorified and true about us is covered up. When you're inside the church, so you look at any of us here, and we're all pretty plain folk, and the deepest truth about us is pretty hidden. But when you're in the church, and you come into the fellowship of the Holy Ghost with one another, which we have in the church, that veil is lifted a little bit, and God allows us to see a little bit into each other, and we see a beauty and a splendor that God is already beginning to plant in us. Now, if you look at this passage, it tells us that Jesus prays, and you always know when Jesus prays for something that the prayer of Jesus functions exactly like a prophecy, because the prayers of Jesus are always fulfilled. My prayers, your prayers, we're only partially 
informed by the Holy Spirit about what we ask for. And we ask very imperfectly and we ask amiss. So our prayers only partially function in a prophetic sense. So you want to know what the future is, then we have to have some sense of what are the prayers of the church. How is God leading the church to pray? Because however the Spirit is truly leading the church to pray and individuals to pray is in fact a prophecy of the future. But that's very imperfect with us. But with Jesus, it's perfect. Because Jesus was perfectly informed by the Spirit. His own person was perfect. So whatever he prays for, in fact, becomes an infallible prophecy of the future. And here he prays that they may be made perfect in one. And the reason that they may be made perfect in one is that the whole world may know and may believe that you have loved me and have sent me to them, that you've loved me, that you sent me, and that you've loved me. I'm exactly who I say I am, and I'm loved by the Father. The world will know that. Now, that's the testimony that's given. What is it about the church that is going to cause the world to have its eyes open? What is it about the church that's going to cause the world to understand that Jesus is exactly who he says he is? And what Jesus prays here is that the world will understand this when they see the unity and oneness of the church. Now... Most of us here are old enough to remember the old Labrie days in the late middle 60s through the, I suppose, through the 70s, kind of the heyday of Labrie, which was really a kind of awakening in the church. I think a large percentage of the leadership in the evangelical world today came out of that awakening in Labrie when all of these American hippies and intellectuals found their way to that little chalet in Switzerland. And Schaefer wrote a nice little book at one point. I don't remember the name of it now. But it was an exegesis of this passage, and this is exactly what he says. He says, the world will know that Jesus is who he says he is when they see love in the church, and they see this unity in the church, and it's a kind of splendor. The mark of the Christian, that's right. And anybody I knew, and I knew a considerable number of people who, by some happenstance or other, found their way up to Labrie, and most of them, a number of people who got converted there, what most of them say is something like this. They'll say, well, yeah, the arguments and all that, that was important. The apologetics were important. The intellectualizing was important. But invariably, what people say is what opened me up to all of those arguments was the love and the harmony that was shown to people when they came to that little chalet. People were really loved and cared for. and People had a sense of extraordinary hospitality, and that sense of love is what opened them up. Well, you see, in this passage, what we have, I think, is both something that applies to us right now in the church today, and it also speaks to what God is going to do in some grand and extraordinary scale through history. We happen to live in a time in history right now when the church is visibly very divided. I think that before the return of Christ, we will see some kind of I don't know what form it will take, and it's incomprehensible to me how the church could be reunited. Truly incomprehensible to me. 20th century ecumenism is an astonishing failure and is full of all kinds of buffoonery and has led to all kinds of folly. But the scripture seems to teach, as I would read the scripture, that historically one of the effects that we will see of the working of the Spirit is that God will bring the church together. And before his return, there will be some kind of unity in the world that will be substantially visible to the world. If you'll look, for example, over, turn to Ephesians, the fourth chapter, Ephesians chapter 4, 17. This is where Paul describes 
the working of the church, and this working of the church is in terms of the giving of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is poured out, and the Spirit does all of these marvelous things, and he names all of these gifts that are given to the church, starting with the 11th verse. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And how long is that going to go? Just stop right there. How long is this going to go on? All of these gifts that God gives to the church in particular persons, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, for how long? Well, until we all come to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, and notice it's in the singular, the whole church is described as one perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. See, now that's the end effect of the church, probably in some particular sense at any given time, but also in some fuller sense historically, that the church is built up to the fullness of this stature, the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, and so on and so forth. But speaking the truth in love, we grow up in all things into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effect of working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Paul's sentences are interminably long. But that's how long it's going to go on, and eventually what we will see in the world is a church that resembles one perfect man, and in fact has grown up to the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ, and there will be a unity that the whole of the world will see. Now, obviously, God doesn't ask us to wait until some ethereal end time of the history of the world for this wonderful thing to work itself out so the world can see the unity of the church it begins in every particular congregation the church is the school of love it's true the family is the school of love but in a larger sense the individual congregation the particular congregation is the school of love and in every given congregation what we have to see and what needs to happen, what we need to pray for, what we are given the sacraments for, what we are given the preaching of the word for, what we are given the communion of the saints for, what we are given corporate prayer for, what we are given the psalms and congregational singing for, is that God might pour one drop of glory and then two drops of glory onto the church in order that even now there might begin to be a unifying of the church and the church itself might begin to display oneness in truth and oneness in love and the perfection of harmony that is God's will to be given to the church. Now, you see, what we have in this is God saying that truth by itself is not enough in some just abstract form, just propositional doctrine is not enough. What has to be given is that drop of glory so that the truth begins to shine and just love that's willed we begin there you see that's always where we start we have to simply will oftentimes to even like people maybe what we don't like but then there is poured out on that a drop of glory and love goes beyond that we begin to see a kind of splendor in one another that natural eyes cannot see and very common and very plain people in the church begin to have a very exalted kind of appearance about them and a very exalted kind of position in the church so often the humblest people become the most beautiful people 
So this drop of glory is poured out in the church, and increasing drops of glory through the history of the church are poured out on us so that eventually God begins to unify the church in all kinds of wonderful ways. Now, let me just shift gears a little bit, because the point I want to make and what I want you to carry away from this is that Glory is not the end of the church, but glory is a means to an end, and that means, or that end, is in fact the unity of the church. It's unity in love and in truth. Unity. In order that we might resemble the Trinity Himself. Just another aside. What is it that causes ecstasy in us? What is it that causes great joy and deep happiness in us? What is it in a fulfilling and happy marriage that causes the husband and wife, in fact, to feel a certain kind of, at times, a certain kind of ecstasy in one another's presence. Well, it's this bliss of harmony. It's, in fact, when we are deeply united with one another, and that disharmony has been broken up, and we are given the splendor of unity, we fit together, and you get a glimpse of that occasionally. That is, in fact, what causes the deepest and most satisfying joy and splendor, sense of splendor that we have in this world. And that's what God is beginning to give to the church. Now, we live in a time when, in fact, the whole of the world seems to be, again, being broken up into all kinds of small, almost little tribal-like groups. We are being split apart. I'm sure Jim has done a good deal of teaching on this kind of thing, that in some sense, we used to be united as the United States of America. The 4th of July was a wonderful celebration that we all felt as Americans. And we don't have that sense anymore. In fact, what we're finding is that I'm an American, so what, ho-hum, and everything is breaking down into smaller and smaller groups, and each group is more and more at war with each other and so on. And what we're finding, as always happens in times of godlessness, is that once again, extraordinary disharmony and even violence is becoming the rule of the world. Now, what was it that marked particularly the world prior to the flood? Prior to the flood, what particularly marked the world, what it says in those early chapters of Genesis, is the world became a world of violence. And it's probably true here, not as much as probably in South Florida, but it's true here just like it is everywhere else. The disharmony that is being experienced in the world is greater and greater, and we're seeing all kinds of breakdown into small groups, even kind of gang-like groups, where everybody else is excluded. Dan here was telling me yesterday that we spent some time together, and he says what's becoming a terrible problem in the courts is young people, these young people coming out of these gang-like situations. The oath that you take in court doesn't mean anything. Telling the truth to the court doesn't mean anything. So you've got lots of young people who just brazenly lie to the court. It doesn't matter to them at all because the only loyalty they have is to this kind of gang-like group they belong to. And the only standard there is is that you are absolutely faithful to this group and you never snitch. So you see what I'm saying, that everything's breaking down into smaller and smaller groups and the disharmony is greater and greater as we move forward. Well, that's one of the reasons that God has given us the picture that we have of Noah and the ark. The ark is the place that we come aboard, and when you come aboard the ark, in fact, you are on board that place where you have protection and where, in fact, unity is found inside of that place. Every time we baptize a child, what you're doing is taking that child on board the ark. And the ark is the place where all kinds of beings and creatures who formerly were at each other's necks 
are now living in harmony with one another. If you want to, you can turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. Now, while you're turning to that, I'm going to turn to another place in Isaiah. And I'm just going to read this to you. I don't want you to flip around too much. But Isaiah chapter 11. Back over here in Isaiah chapter 54, we have a description given to us of a worldwide covenant of peace that God will establish with his people. You say in Isaiah chapter 11, but it says this, For this is like the waters of Noah to me, for as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so I have sworn that I would not be angry with you or rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. If we go back and we look at the ark, and there's a particular reason I'm bringing this up. If you go back and you look at the ark, what you see in the ark is not just a picture. How can I put this? God is not just making a covenant with nature. God actually made a covenant with the whole of the world through Noah, and it's a covenant of grace. It's a promise to all of the world that God is going to save the whole of the human race. Because remember, what went on board that ark was the whole of humanity that was saved. Out of eight people, the whole rest of the world was saved. And of course, they went off and formed different parts of the earth, populated different parts of the earth. But all those people eventually have promises given to them that will bring them back into a covenant of grace. There's a covenant of grace that, in fact, surrounds all of them. And in Isaiah 54, we're given a description of this as a covenant of peace with the whole of the earth. The waters of Noah, which in fact preserved the peoples of that time, there's a promise that God will, God's using this in this context to show them that His care for these people in the time of Isaiah is just like God's care for the people aboard that ark. What else is it that went aboard that ark? Well, you had pairs, you either had seven pair or you had a pair of every animal taken aboard that ark. And aboard that ark were all kinds of beasts that in nature have no relationship with one another except a relationship of violence. But what all of those animals really represent is what God is going to do in the New Covenant. Remember, they came on board the ark. Apparently, they just all laid down and went to sleep, and they lived in peace with one another aboard that ark. And the reason I had you turn to Isaiah chapter 11 is a prophecy given to us of the New Covenant is this. It says, starting with the sixth verse, The wolf shall also dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf with the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, and young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw with like the ox, and the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. And they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And what you have here is that ordinarily we all know that wolves do not dwell with lambs. If they do, it is not a peaceful dwelling. We know that bears do not dwell with oxen. We know that lions do not eat with oxen. Lambs, which I suppose in this context probably represent the Jewish people, all through the Old Testament, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want you. always have this picture of the Jewish people as the sheep of God's pasture. Well, we all know that lambs are both dumb animals, and they're not particularly 
fierce animals. We all know that. Now, lambs do not have giant talons and great teeth and so on. They're absolutely without protection. And we know that wolves all through the Bible are described as those who would persecute the church because they would destroy the lambs, they would destroy the flock. We know that leopards, uh, likewise, young goats, they don't get along together. The calf and the young lion. You see, what you have here is a pairing up on the one side, an animal that is a pastoral animal that is defenseless and probably through most of scriptures described in one way or another as an animal of God. And on the other hand, you have these fierce carnivorous animals who are the animals, if you will, of the devil who persecute the church and who will destroy these animals, rip them to shreds and so on, the bear and the lion and the leopard. And then eventually you have this picture of the cobra's hole, which has to be the serpent is the evil one, the devil, and a nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and this cobra is helpless to damage this child. And it says they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. Well, now that's a picture exactly of the ark. And if you go forward, that's a picture of God's future description of the Jews and the Gentiles. That eventually God is going to bring all of these peoples that are hostile to one another and have nothing in common with one another and one group of them are fierce and terrible and can destroy the other group they're all going to lay down and they're going to live in peace and harmony with one another now we know that in fact I'm not just making that up we know that's the case because if you go over to Acts chapter 10 and 11 you remember the vision that Peter had he had that vision when God sent him out and what he's going to do is begin to bring the Gentiles into the new covenant you remember that giant sheet came down out of heaven and it had all kinds of animals that under the law were unclean animals and in fact represent Gentiles. And Peter's told three times to rise up, kill and eat. So these become sacrificial animals that are fit now for Jewish and, if you will, human consumption. And what it means is in fact God has accepted, just as he's accepted the unclean animals, and under the economy of God are now fit to be part of the kingdom of God. What they really represent, of course, are the Gentiles. But they're not just Gentiles. What you're looking at here are Assyrians and Goths and Vandals and all of these fierce people that, in fact, the church went on to conquer. And what you, in fact, literally begin to find is these fierce, fierce people who by nature would have been terrible persecutors and destroyers of God's helpless little church. In fact, themselves are pacified and they come into the church and there is a drop of glory that begins to be dropped on them. And they, in fact, begin to see the beauty of the church and the church begins to see the beauty of them and there is a new kind of unity that starts to grow up. So we know, I mean, I'm not just making that up. In fact, this whole picture of Noah's Ark is fulfilled in these three sheets coming down with Peter. So this becomes exactly a picture of what goes on in the New Covenant. I had the privilege a number of years ago, and this happened all over the country at this time, there was a touch of real awakening that happened in this country in the late 60s and early 70s. And I had contact with a number of people. There was kind of a sister group of people in Detroit, Michigan, that were connected with some people in Boulder, Colorado. And there had been people in the middle of the Detroit ghettos who had prayed that God would do something in these ghettos, in the worst parts of Detroit, prayed for years and years and years that God would do something. 
And in the early 70s and late 60s, there was a real outpouring of the Spirit. There was a real awakening. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these ghetto kids from the toughest parts of Detroit were converted, came into the church, and a lot of them were still there. They've proven to be good fruit. And there was a lot of interconnection between... There was an awakening amongst hippies and so on. Boulder became the national center of hippiedom in the late 60s and early 70s. There were so many hippies in Boulder, you couldn't walk up on the University Hill. I mean, you literally couldn't just look like the place was surrounded by Indians and all these long-haired people living in teepees. and They didn't have clothes on, some of them. They were practically naked. And several hundred of these kids got converted. And there were a couple of churches that grew out of this, which I had some connection with. But a number of these kids came down from Detroit, and if ever there were bears and lions and leopards and all kinds of vicious animals in the biblical typology, it was these kids. I mean, a couple of people who became my good friends were heroin addicts in Detroit. And they had been in the infantry and the Marines, and they went back to Detroit and got hooked on heroin and lived the kind of lives that junkies live. And they got converted and had these extraordinary conversions. And the thing that marked them, I remember the man who was kind of the ruling and teaching elder in Boulder with all of these kids. He said, you know, the most remarkable thing about these kids, these kids who come from tough gangs and who have lived lives as long back as they can remember of fighting. And one fellow said that everybody's favorite occupation was fighting. It wasn't even drinking. It was fighting. That was what everybody loved. Barroom brawls were there. That was the best thing of all. What was their gentleness? An amazing kind of gentleness was given to these kids, and a drop of glory was poured out on them. And what we saw for a while in the situation I was in, you would see university professors and these almost illiterate kids who learned to read in their King James Bibles, became literate in their King James Bibles, coming together and worshiping together. And there was a drop of glory that was poured out. And they could see the beauty and the splendor in one another. And there was a kind of unity that you see was given. Now that's the picture that's given to us in Isaiah. We have this picture of lambs and lions lying down together. The bear and the ox, you see, feeding together. The one not hurting the other. The other appreciating this mutual kind of appreciation. Well, you see, that is exactly the kind of picture that we are given that Jesus paints for us or that Jesus prays for in John chapter 17. That there could be this drop of glory, which of course one day will issue in complete splendor, complete glory, and complete beauty in the church, and the unity will be perfect, but it doesn't start there, it starts here. And it begins with each one of you. I mean, all of us have people that we find it impossible to get along with, impossible to be with. And in the church, God begins to make possible what otherwise is an impossibility. Now, it's in the church through the means that this happens. This is why we take the Lord's Supper. It begins when we baptize the child. You pour this plain old ordinary water on the child and the child begins to shine. Maybe don't see it with our eyes, but in fact that child begins to shine, and he shines through all of his life, sometimes brighter, sometimes more dimly. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, there is another drop of glory that's poured out on us. We ought to take the Lord's Supper in faith every week, believing that God is doing something. I'm a person, I don't know if this is your experience or not, but when I have some living experience of the Holy Spirit, it tends to be preaching, 
reading the Bible, reading some Christian book, prayer, communion of the saints. I'm one of those people like C.S. Lewis. I take the Lord's Supper in faith. I never have an existential experience when I take the Lord's Supper. My wife, it's the time she has the greatest existential experience. Lewis said that he took the sacrament faithfully every week in faith. He didn't have any sense of anything happening. He just believed it. I'm one of those people. But I take it, and I believe that, in fact, the Lord is doing something. And you live with that. And, in fact, we believe that on some level it's below what we can understand. God is doing something to knit us together, and he's pouring out his drop of glory every week on us as we do this. And as we stand up to sing these hymns together, you see what we're expressing is glory and splendor. The highlight, really, in a real sense, of the conference this year, of the Biblical Horizons Conference, the point of it was, I suppose if you were to sum it all up, is what the church needs to do is sing the Psalter. Well, is it not true? See, in singing, this is where we experience the glory of God. When we think of glory, one of the things we think of is the, you know, at Christmas time, these choruses of angels coming out of heaven and singing. Well, singing is always an expression of glory. The Wesleyan Revival, the only great hymns, I think, in the English language were written by Charles Wesley out of that wonderful awakening when all kinds of bears and oxen and lions were converted and sat down with little lambs and people who despised and hated one another. A violent time when these people, in fact, had drops of glory poured out on them. And the expression of that were these wonderful hymns of Charles Wesley and the church sang together in unity, expressed its unity. So, my friends, this is what we are given, and what I would exhort you to is so much of the Bible is given to us simply to believe, and when we believe it, something happens to us. Well, this is one of the things we're given to believe, that Jesus has prayed for us, and this is the comfort. Through two millennia now, this prayer has been answered. Sometimes we see greater effects, sometimes the effects aren't so great, but our calling is to simply believe that in fact Jesus has prayed for us and we are to live in the light of this prayer. He has prayed that the glory which the Father had given to Jesus would be given to them, would be given to us, that they may be made perfect in one that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. That's how the world knows, and that's the effect that we have on the world. This is simply a reality. Believe that. Believe that. Live with that this week as a central thought in your mind. This is what God has given to you, and the glory of the church does not begin in the hereafter. It begins right now. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.